the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. So happy Lord's Day. Um, the, the, the saints all around the world gather on Sunday, the first day of the week, which is what we're calling the Lord's Day because that was the day, in, in a sense, where Jesus was declared Lord in his resurrection from the dead. And so we celebrate that as our only hope in life and in death, in sadness and in happiness. Uh, that is our, our hope and our guiding light for the future going forward. My name is PJ. I'm one of the four pastors here at Bethany Baptist Church, and it's a joy and delight to bring you the word this morning. So, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bibles and open it to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28. This is a launching pad verse. It's not, it's a topical message today as we consider the sanctity of human life and opposing abortion. But let's start with Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Matthew 28, 16 to 20. And if someone has a pew Bible, what page number is that? 886. 886. Thank you, Angelique. Page 886. Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Hear God's word. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. To the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, we want to obey this passage. We want to humbly submit to the authority of Christ. We want to gladly submit to the authority of Christ. Lord Jesus, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. All authority in heaven and on earth and in Bellflower and in Southeast LA County and in Los Angeles and in America and all around the world, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to you. And we gladly recognize that authority. We worship you and submit to your authority. And we pray now that we would hear from you that you would teach us your words, and not only teach us your words, but teach us and shape us and change us to observe your words, to carefully observe all that you have commanded. We thank you that you're with us to the end of the age, which means you're with us right now as we're hearing your word. And so now, Lord Jesus, we are depending on your presence and on your spirit to guide us, because apart from you, we will waste our time. We need you, Lord, for this hour. So help us to hear and heed and be changed by your word and to see your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this is our second week as we think about uh, the Christian and social order, our societal responsibilities. And some might say, you know what, uh, PJ, you just need to preach the gospel. All Christians need to do is just preach the gospel. Is that right? We should just preach the gospel? I guess it depends on what you mean by gospel, right? And what you mean by uh, preaching. But if we say just preach the gospel, just preach Christ crucified and risen, that people would just uh, repent from their sins and trust in Jesus. Just preach that gospel. And they might even turn to Matthew 28 and say, go therefore, go there, go therefore and disciple all nations. So see there, it says, disciple all nations. How do, you, how do you make disciples? You make disciples. They become disciples by preaching the gospel because faith comes by... Hearing and hearing the what? The word of Christ, which is the gospel. 
So preach the, the gospel, the word of Christ, and let faith come. And when they have faith in Jesus, then they will call out to Jesus. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, so do that. That's what it says, make disciples. And it does say make disciples. It does say disciple all nations. Disciple making and discipling is, I would say yes, but discipling is broader than that. Even in Matthew 28, 19, it says go. That's another command, go. And then disciple means preaching the gospel so that people can become Christians, can, can, can convert to Christianity, convert to following Jesus. But discipling and disciple making is more than just preaching for conversion. You have to, after they get converted, what does it say in the text? Baptizing them. So you baptize them into, so they make a public profession of faith and they're baptized publicly, identified as Christians with other Christians in a local church. And then what do you do with them in verse 20? You teach them what? Just the gospel? Just justification by faith alone? Teach them to observe or obey what? Everything Christ commanded. So in other words, we want to teach the whole counsel of God. And we want to teach them to obey Christ in everything that all of the Bible teaches, rightly applied to them here in this New Covenant context, right? That is the Great Commission, not just preaching the gospel for conversion. That does not work. That is not, that's not the mission in and of itself. That's an indispensable, central part, crucial part of the mission. But it's not the mission in and of itself. That's reductionistic and that's false and wrong. And if you remember from last week, uh, if you've read uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail, he even dealt with that in his very day when he was dealing with people who were saying to him in his day, just preach the gospel. Okay, we, um, we want to preach the gospel and we don't want to minimize or do other things besides preaching the gospel, but we want to obey this great commission in its fullness because all authority in heaven and on earth is given to Christ, not just for people's conversion, but all of their life is to be under the authority of Jesus Christ. This is in line, this burden, which we spend these two weeks, last week on ethnocentrism, this week on the sanctity of human life. This is in line with our confession of faith as a church. So it says, Article 16 of our Confession of Faith says this, the Christian and social order, recognizing whose created order this is, and we could even add, and who has all authority in heaven and on earth, every, Christ, quote, every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the scriptural principles of righteousness, truth, and love. You, see, you hear that? We're saying, we believe, we're confessing as a church that Christians should seek to bring society as a whole, government and industry under the sway of biblical scriptural principles of righteousness, okay? Truth and love. Biblical principles of love, biblical principles of truth, biblical principles of righteousness. We should, bring, we should seek to bring society as a whole and industry and government under the sway of these things. Furthermore, Christian, quote, Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any good cause without compromise to Christ. That means we can work with those who are not Christian, all humans of goodwill, without compromising our biblical convictions to Christ as Lord. And then it says, continuing, quote, improvement of society can be permanently helpful only when rooted in the regeneration of individuals. So we're not under the illusion that if you just work for good, it will be permanently good. No, we need to work for and we, we need to pray for and our main mission is, is for people to become Christians and to walk in Christ as Christians, not just do generally good things, righteous things, true things, loving things, though we want to do that as well as good neighbors and citizens or members of a society. So we want to talk about abortion today. 
We want to focus on it. What is a, what, uh, abortion? What's, what's, the, what's the state of our situation today with abortion in this land? Abortion in our land is legal for any reason before birth as long as, as long as the mother states can state that it's for her health. And health is generally defined there. Now this might get overturned in the courts this month or soon with a decision. But even if so, it would not make abortion illegal in all 50 states most likely. Almost for sure it wouldn't do that if they reversed Roe v. Wade. And even if it was illegal, by God's grace, by God's common grace in all 50 states, it doesn't mean people would not get abortions or take pills or use abortifacient birth, or, or birth control pills, um, which are just kind of unintentionally doing abortions, or even intentional uh, day after pills. We would still have to, even if it became illegal, we would still have to disciple our neighbors and members to speak the truth in love. We would still have to teach people to observe everything Christ has commanded. So our hope is not in the law. We can pray for that. But our hope is not in the law and legal mechanisms, though we should work for that as well in terms of general, um, general responsibility as a Christian. But our calling is to disciple people. Our calling is to teach people to obey everything Christ commanded because all authority is Christ's. Whether they recognize Jesus as Lord or not, he has authority over them, right? And so we want to teach people to fall in line with that authority because that is where true life and joy and happiness is found. Now, in our country, um, we can easily be unaffected by raw statistics. We have been numbed by our everyday routines that we don't feel the horror of abortion in our world today. I think of two, two other um, ways that, that I feel desensitized to this issue. One would be if I were living in the 1790s or in the 1820s, 1822 instead of 2022, I would probably be very numb to the issue, issue of slavery as, as an evil in the culture. Not because uh, it's a lot clearer in 2022 when I can look back, but if I was living in 1822, 1822 and growing up in that culture, and I was European-American, I was Anglo-American, I would probably have a hard time feeling the horror and the weight of it back then, right? Not whereas now. And, and so I think about future generations. When you look back, you're like, how could they have not seen that? I look back at future generations, or I look forward to future generations looking back at 2022 and digging, digging up some old sermons from Bethany Baptist Church and, and seeing the blog posts and the, the social media posts of members of Bethany Baptist Church and think, why did they not talk about this that much? I mean, babies were being killed. Like, how were they just posting about, you know, you know what, what they're eating this week? Like, how, 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 why so many posts on that and so little on, on this horrific tragedy that's happening all the time? It, it could blow the mind of future gener our, our, our descendants who look back on these days and uncover, you know, some, some of our, our, our culture and just be like, what was, what was happening in the churches? Why were Christians not more horrified by this reality? But the, the, the truth of it is that when you're in it, it's hard to see it. You're swimming in a water. I mean, I've been, as, as long as I've been alive, it has been, it has been legal in, in, in this country. So I don't, I don't know of a life before it was legal. And so, and so, so it, it is more, more normal, just like maybe in future generations, uh, same-sex marriages will be more normal. But all of us here are old enough to remember that it wasn't legal even 10 years ago. And, and it was a different society even in 2008 in California when we passed, when we passed certain, certain um, statutes or um, I can't remember the name of the law. But yeah, so, so we are easily unaffected by these things. 
It's like being in Nazi Germany as a German citizen and you see these walls down the street that are really high and you can't see what's going on inside but your Jewish neighbors have been taken away and you know that they've been taken away. You don't know what's going on behind the, those walls but you know something's off. You know that they are mistreated and, and they're, they're, they're being belittled in, in the propaganda of and the, the news and the, the cultural thoughts of the day. And yet, you might not know exactly what's going on, but it's happening literally down your street behind that wall where six million Jews are being killed in these concentration camps. And yet, you could be numb as, as a Christian in that day, just kind of living your life. I got work today. I got to go to church today. I got to read my Bible. I have to, I have to pay my bills. I got to have people over my house for dinner. And we just kind of go on with the busyness of life that they, they don't stop to think of what's going on actually right around them and under their noses. So here's some stats. Just under 900,000 900, uh, abortions were in this country in 2020. An estimated 63 million abortions have been committed uh, legally here in the 49 years of Roe v. Wade being legal. legal. Next year will be 50, uh, 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. So that's 63 million abortions. If you take abortions as human life, which I'm going to... Um, argue here and, and um, assert, um, that would be like having 10 holocausts in the last 50 years, 10 holocausts. It's estimated that there are 40 million, um, I'm saying, oh yeah, uh, it's estimated that over 40 million abortions occur globally. So 63 million in America in the last 49 years, 40 million globally every year. That's estimate. That's almost seven holocausts every year. Aren't abortions, though, happening outside of the church? It's not really happening in the church, though, right? I mean, Christians aren't having abortions, are they? Well, in our country, about one in five, just under one in five, so 18, 19, 20% of, of those who say that they are evangelical, Bible-believing, or born-again Christians are having abortions. That's 162,000 a year. 162,000 unborn People, unborn persons, unborn human lives are killed, are terminated by mothers who say that they are born again, who say that they are Bible believing, say that they go to church. And if you add chemical abortions and day after pills and things like that, that, that total is much higher than 162,000 a year. So Randy Alcorn says, quote, this means the church is killing its own children at an alarming rate. Our congregations are filled with single girls and boys, young couples, parents, grandparents, sympathetic friends, and even pastors, elders, and deacons who, through their counsel or lack of counsel, have innocent blood on their hands. Remember we talked about intentional and unintentional sin last week? We talked not only about individual personal sin, but even corporate unintentional sin last week. That applies certainly to abortion as well have innocent blood on their hands. Pro-life Christians have believed too long that our primary job is to convince the world of what we, have, what we already know to be true about the unborn. In fact, the church has failed to educate its own people about abortion. If the church is to stop, killing, stop the killing in society, it must start by stop, stopping the killing in our own midst. For it is, and he quotes 1 Peter 4, 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. Then Randy Alcorn continues, if the church does not stand up for the unborn, surely the, wor the world never will. 
So we need to think about it in our own church. When I think 162,000 abortions among Bible-believing or evangelical-professing born-again Christians, I mean, Bellflower has 80,000 people. So that's like all the people of Bellflower, two, two cities like Bellflower, died every year from Bible-believing um, evangelical-professing um, Christians. So we need to think about this as a church. We need to understand. You need to understand this, and we need to understand it regularly. I can't preach a sermon once and just assume it's good for the next 30 years. So here we are again on this day, this Sunday, talking about abortion. Why is abortion wrong? Why is abortion wrong? What would you say? Anyone? It's murder. Any other thoughts on why abortion might be wrong? It's okay if you're wrong on your guess. It's just good to hear. What else are you guys thinking? It's murder. They didn't do anything. Okay. The unborn babies didn't do anything wrong. Anything else? It messes the mom up emotionally and physically. Good. Anything else? Okay. You're ending the life of someone who can't speak for themselves. They're not given a choice, right? A say in the matter. Yeah, I want to give you three reasons here why abortion is wrong. There are a lot of reasons. I want to give you three reasons from the Bible, like biblical uh, reasons why abortion is wrong, biblically rooted reasons why abortion is wrong. So let's think about these three reasons. Number one, I, I need to say two sentences for number one. I can't distill to one. God creates and has a relationship with unborn persons. Okay, that's a biblical truth. God creates and has a relationship with unborn persons. We're going to look at that biblically. Therefore, here's the reason, to abort an unborn human life, an unborn person, and there's a debate about whether you should call it a person or not, but um, an unborn human life, I think that would probably be the, the least debatable phrase, unborn human life. To abort an unborn human life dismisses God and assumes the right to end a human life. So if God has, if God creates and has a relationship with unborn human life and we end it, we're assuming that we have the right to end what God has a relationship with. And that's why it's wrong. So let me, let's think about this biblically. Let me say it one more time for those of you who are writing. God creates and has a relationship with unborn human life, human lives. To abort an unborn human life dismisses God and his relationship with him. And it assumes the right to end that human life. So a few, um, few biblical um, underpinnings here. First of all, look at, now I have a few verses here, but I'm only going to one because we have to keep moving on. So Job 1, 4 through 5. I'm sorry, not Job, Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1, 4 through 5. Now, Calvin read Job 10, 8 through 12, and the, the same concept was there, but um, I hope you picked up on it there. You can look at that again later as far as the scripture reading. But look at Jeremiah 1, 4 through 5. John mentioned last year Psalm 139, 13 through 16, which is another common passage. So I want to give you a different passage today. Jeremiah 1, 4 through 5. It says this. Now, I can't just give you the page numbers and go through because we have a lot of verses to cover. So if you could get there, great. If not, just listen. Jeremiah 1, 4 through 5 says this. The word of the Lord came to me. I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. This is God speaking to Jeremiah. Speaking to Jeremiah. So what is God saying to Jeremiah? I chose you before I formed you in the womb. So that choice is preconception. But who's the one forming Jeremiah in the womb? God is. So God is personally involved in the formation of the life in the womb of every person. 
Now, if we talk about the doctrine of providence, if you've come to our Wednesday morning systematic theology classes, only a few of you have, but we've talked about primary and secondary causes. God is always the primary cause, and there are secondary causes. So why does it rain? Well, you can think about the water cycle. Like, oh, it's not because of God, it's because of the water cycle. Yeah, the water cycle is a secondary cause, but, but God is the primary cause who, who created and sustains that water cycle. So God is the primary cause that doesn't negate secondary causes, okay? So, yes, there are, well, well no, it's not, the, it's not God who's forming the, the embryo in the womb. It was the, the, husband, the, the man and the woman. It was the sperm and the egg. And, and you start going through science and saying, that's what's forming the baby, not God. No, no. It's not either or. God is the primary cause, personally involved. Every time it rains, God is personally involved in the rain. God is personally involved in each, in, in, in each fertilized egg and, and the, 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 the beginning of human life. And the seeing through of that human life to birth, God is personally involved in forming it. He's the primary cause. There are secondary causes. But the point here is God is personally involved. He actively forms the person in the womb. Look at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I want you to see that the fetus in the womb is considered a baby or a child. In Luke chapter 1. Let's take this dialogue here, and notice here what I'm doing is the Bible's not arguing and giving reasons for the value of unborn life. It's assuming the value of unborn life. So I'm just pointing this out. Luke 1.39, this is the conversation between John the Baptist's mom and Jesus' mom, so Elizabeth and Mary. In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting... The baby leaped inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So John the Baptist, inside of Elizabeth's womb, leaped when, when Elizabeth heard the voice of Mary. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me, Elizabeth says, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So what is she calling Mary? A what? A mother which means she has a child, right? Not only that, so, so consider her mother, that, that is a child, unborn child, and then um, she calls this unborn child in Mary, who is certainly in the first trimester, maybe in the, even in the early, early days of the first trimester, um, calls this unborn child her what? Her Lord. Not, oh, well, well once he becomes a person, then he'll be my Lord. Or, or once, once the baby is born, then it becomes a person, and then, you know, then he'll be my Lord. No, um, the, 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 the unborn baby, the unborn person, the unborn human life, the embryo in Mary's womb is Elizabeth's Lord. Okay, continuing on with the conversation here, verse 44. For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside me. Blessed is the one who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken of her. So even here, then verse 44, you have the baby leaping inside of, um, leaping for joy inside the womb of Elizabeth. Again, unborn babies on both sides, and you see that these unborn human lives are, um, are at, well, at least with John, he's active in the womb. And that, now that's supernatural. It's not to say every baby or most unborn babies go through experiences like that, but they don't really talk to the mother who's bearing the God-man, Jesus Christ, in the womb, right? Um, so this is a special circumstance, but the point is that these babies unborn are, are considered babies, children, people, persons, all right? Uh, 
So, so, so one other point here in terms of God having a relation. So we talked about God forming, so God's personally involved in the creation of the human life. These, these unborn human lives are considered uh, persons or babies, children. And then God not only forms them, but he has a relationship with those in the womb, not just John the Baptist, who's going to be a prophet, and Jesus the Messiah, who's the, the eternal God now taking on human nature there in the womb. But, but God has a relationship with others as well. Look at Genesis 25. Or listen to Genesis 25, and I'm going to couple that with Romans 9. So Genesis 25, we're thinking about the birth of Jacob and Esau. If you remember the birth of Jacob and Esau, so God calls Abraham, and Sarah, Abraham marries Sarah, and Abraham goes out. Then Isaac marries Rebekah, Abraham's son marries Rebekah, and then Rebekah gets pregnant. And in Genesis 25, so this is the, the babies in the womb here are Abraham's grandchildren. In Genesis 25, 21... It says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife that she should, because she was childish, childish, child, not childish, sorry. <laughs> she wasn't childish. She was childless. She was childless. Stop being a baby, Rebecca. No, just kidding. She was childless. The Lord was receptive to his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, conceived. But the children inside her struggled with each other. Notice they're called children inside her. Struggled with each other. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of Yahweh. And Yahweh said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. When her time came to give birth, there were indeed twins in her womb. Okay, so that's Jacob and Esau. So if you go to Romans 9, Romans 9 is going to pick up on this story, and, and we're going to see here that God actually has a relationship uh, with, and, uh, um, with, with, these, with these unborn children. Romans 9, 8 says, um, Let's go to Romans uh, 9, 9. For this statement, this is the statement of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebecca, verse 10, Rebecca conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. So God has a love relationship and a hate relationship, and he has a, a destiny for these, and he relates to them. He already has a relationship with them even before they are born. So God not only forms those in the womb, but has a relationship with those in the womb as his creatures. And not only that, if you look at Psalm 51 verse 5, Psalm 51 verse 5, now we're not only born with a human nature, but humans are born in sin. In Adam, it says in Romans 5 that we're all born under the headship of Adam. And so in Adam, we have sinned. And in Psalm 51, verse 5, David is praying his prayer of repentance after he committed adultery um, and sexual morality and abused his power. Psalm 51, verse 5 says, indeed, David says, I was guilty when I was born. Oh, you're saying, well, no, that was when I was born. But no, look at the next, the next part. I was sinful when? When was... David's sinful or having a sin nature. When? Not when he was born. When my mother conceived me. So if if a, if a unborn if, if someone who has been conceived at the point of conception can can be sinful or have a sin nature, then they, they should have a human nature in Adam. Okay, so even here we, we are even born with a sinful nature, and we have that nature in at conception, not just at birth.
Okay, so, so God personally is active in the creation of the embryo. And the unborn child, he considers them children or persons. Depending on how you define that, I don't even want to get in that debate. Uh, these human lives, he has a relationship with them. They even have a sin nature alongside their human nature or with their human nature before they're born in conception. And so those are some biblical thoughts here. But let's get a, a science, one scientist's perspective. He says this, quote, uh, or speaking of the early stages of a child's development, Dr. Alfred uh, Bongiovanni, professor of obstetrics at the University of Pennsylvania states, quote, human life is present throughout this entire sequence from conception to adulthood. Any interruption at any point throughout this time constitutes the termination of a human life. I am no more prepared to say that these early stages represent an incomplete human being than I would be to say that a child prior to the dramatic effects of puberty is not a human being. This is a human life at every stage. So again, to recap, that's, the science, that's one scientist's perspective, but to recap from the Bible, God forms and has a relationship with his creation, and that relationship with the human life is part of what makes them image bearers. So I said last week, and I, I confused some people last week with the Tim Chester quote where I said, the image of God is not inherent in you, it's by your relationship with God, but you're always in relationship with God. So in that sense, it is inherent because you can't exist as a human without being in relationship to God. But that, that inherent image of Godness is tied to the fact that you are always in relationship with God as one of his creatures, as one of his creatures, okay? And it says in Deuteronomy 32, 37 to 39, we'll just turn there, Deuteronomy 32, 37 to 39, so um, this goes to what one of the members said in the back in terms of why abortion is wrong in terms of murder, um, Deuteronomy 32, this is already previewing, I guess, the next point. Deuteronomy 32, 37. This is still on the point of, like, assuming God's role. 32, 37 says this. He will say, where are their gods? The rock they found refuge in. Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you. Let it be a shelter for you. See now that I alone am he. This is God speaking. There is no God but me. Here it is, listen to verse 39. I bring death and I give life. I wound and I heal. No one can rescue anyone from my power. So who has the authority and the right to give life? God does. Who has the authority and right to bring death? God does. Not us. That's his authority. And that's the point, is that when you decide to have an abortion, when someone decides to have an abortion, they are assuming the right of God who has a relationship with that unborn child. Uh, unborn human life. They assume that right to end a life that, that has a relationship with God. And that's the first reason why it's wrong. Because you're not God. So Genesis 3, 1, that's Satan. The serpent's point is to get Adam and Eve to think that they're on the same level as God to make their own choices. Or John preached through the book of Judges last year. And the, one of the themes of Judges is that everyone does what is right in their own eyes. There's no authority of a king, of a godly king. So everyone does what is right in their own eyes. So that's the first reason why it's wrong. Second reason why it's wrong, and the second and third are, are a lot shorter, okay? The second reason why it's wrong is because, to state it, um, as stated earlier, abortion kills an innocent human life. So that's to take um, both Baker answers, father and daughter, right? Um, abortion kills an innocent human life. So it's murder, and that, and that child hasn't done anything wrong. So there's the innocence part, okay? So it kills an innocent human life. So Genesis 9-5, if you're in your Bible, 
Genesis 9.5 tells us why abortion is wrong. Not, I mean, not just abortion, but really murder, why murder is wrong. Genesis 9.5. By the way, you know, there's a, there's a movement in our day also to not eat animals and to be vegetarian based on the rights of animals, right? Um, that's a popular teaching in our, in our day, a popular concept of feeling, feeling compassion for the animals such that eating animals is wrong. So before I even read Genesis 9.5, let me just go back to Genesis 9.1 and just kind of just feel the flow of this to see 9.5 in contrast to the previous verses. God blessed Noah and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be on every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. I don't think that was the case pre-fall. But, so there may be vegetarians pre-fall. But now, um, every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. So can you eat animals, yes or no? Can humans eat animals, yes or no? Yes, yes they're under the authority of humans. So you could kill the animals and eat them. Nothing wrong with that. Something right about that. Something biblical about that. But what does verse 5 say? And I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone, if what? When does God require the lifeblood of the person or the animal? If someone or some animal murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood, by blood his blood will be sh by humans his blood will be shed. Why? Verse six. For God made humans what? In His image. There's a difference between killing animals for food and killing humans. Right? You have the right to kill animals for food. They're under your authority. Humans are not under your authority, where you can just kill them. If you murder a human made in God's image, in Roman in Genesis nine five and six, God requires that person's life. Okay, that, now, how does that work out today? We're not saying, we're not talking about what, what should be the penalty for abortion. The point here is that murder is wrong because it is killing a human life. And that life is made in God's image. Okay. So murder is wrong. Killing a human life is wrong. And so even killing, an, if an unborn, if an unborn substance, just to kind of level, if, if that substance in that, in the womb is a human life, then, and you're terminating that substance, that's a human life, then that's uh, terminating a human life, that's killing a human life, and that's wrong. Okay, one other passage here, and then we'll move to point three. Let's turn to Psalm 106. This will actually hinge to our third point. We'll use this for point two and then set it up for point three. Psalm 106, verses 34 to 42. Psalm 106, 34. Speaking of, this is recounting all of Israel's failures and sins. So Psalm 106 is like, praise Yahweh. Um, and, and then pray for your salvation. And then the middle section of this psalm is all about ponder your sins. And there's all kinds of sins of Israel. And then it ends with like, pray for your salvation and praise Yahweh. So here in this middle section of ponder your sins, we jump in at verse 34. And it's recounting the sins of Israel. They did not destroy the peoples when they were in the land, the book of Judges, as Yahweh had commanded them. So instead of doing that in the book of Judges, what did they do? But mingled with the nations and adopted their ways. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. So they start to commit idolatry. 
and adopt their ways. What are some of those ways? Verse 37. What do they do in verse 37? They sacrificed whom? Their sons and daughters to demons, to idols. They sacrificed, they killed their sons and their daughters, offering them up to their false gods, to demons that they thought were false gods or thought they were gods. They, verse 38, they shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. So the land became polluted with blood. They defiled themselves by their actions and prostituted themselves by their deeds. Here, the, first, the point for point two in terms of murder, it's that they are innocent, innocent blood. They didn't do anything wrong. They didn't do anything worthy of being killed. And yet their lives are being terminated. And that's sinful. So that's the second reason why uh, abortion is wrong and evil. Because it kills an innocent human life. Innocent blood is shed. And that innocent life is made in God's image. The third reason is because abortion um, commits and reinforces idolatry. Abortion is a commitment of idolatry. It's committing idolatry. And it reinforces idolatry. Okay? So it commits idolatry and it reinforces idolatry. And we could start here in Psalm 106, verse 38. We could just camp here, verse 38. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. So it's because they're committed to some other god, not the god of the Bible, but the idols of Canaan, the false gods that committed to their ways and to their culture, they're willing to sacrifice their sons and daughters for idolatry. So the sacrificing of children in Psalm 106, 38 is idolatry. And that's what James gets at in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, right? When he says, why is there fights and conflict among you? Because you have some desire in you that you, you, you have and do not, you ask and don't get, and you, don't, you ask for things to spend on your own selfish desires. And then he says, you want to spend on your own selfish desires, and the very next verse says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Where are those evil desires coming from? Or what is it in line with? Your friendship with the world. Your desires are in line with the worldly desires, which puts God outside of the center of your desires. And when God is not central, you're worshiping an idol. There's something else that takes center stage, something else that takes the throne, as, uh, as Alexa prayed in her prayer. Something else takes the throne of our hearts. Something else becomes the king with the final authority, and we bow down and worship that king, that throne, and that idol. And oftentimes, it's friendship with the world. It's a worldly desire a worldly idol that we adopt their ways. What are some of the worldly idols that feed into abortion? There's a few. Sexual immorality could be one. Um, in terms of sex outside of marriage, sexual intercourse outside of marriage between one man and one woman, husband and wife, that's what sexual immorality is. In 2019, unmarried women accounted for 86% of all abortions in this country. Unmarried women. So sexual uh, intercourse outside of marriage, 86% of abortions are from unmarried women as opposed to the married women. So that's one, is sexual morality. That could be an idol. Another one could be greed, finance, financial provision. I can't afford a child right now. Selfishness, I don't want to be inconvenienced by this child. Fear, legitimate fear. Will this child grow up in an okay home? But, but, but giving into the fear such that you're willing to, to let that rule as opposed to letting God rule is idolatry. So fear, ignorance even, just not knowing what abortion is and what's going on in abortion. 
Let me give you from a survey, why do abortions occur? In our country, less than half a percent is because they're a victim of rape. That's the reason they gave. Less than half a percent is a victim of rape. 3% is because of fetal health problems. 4% get abortions in this nation because of physical health problems in the survey. 4% would, they didn't want it to interfere with their career or their education. You can start to hear some of the idols, right? They don't want it to interfere with their career or their education. 7% get an abortion because they're not mature enough to raise a child, they say. 8% don't want to be a single mom. 19% are done having children. So it's the idolatry of the limit of children. As if you could just determine that limitation, be like, nope, I'm just gonna abort a child because we have too many children. 23% can't afford a baby, so it's finances. 25% say they're not ready for a child. And 6% have another reason. That's, that's nationwide. And that's just kind of, you know, I mean, they took um, 1,200 post-abortive women and, and surveyed that. That's national one. But then Florida actually records a reason for every abortion that occurs within its borders. So if you, just to kind of get a, a state snapshot, let me just give you a few more reasons so you can think about the motives, the desires, the commitments, the p potential possible idols that are being reinforced in abortions. 0.01% is because of incestuous relationship, 0.01. Uh, 0.15%, not 1%, 0.15% is because a woman was raped. 0.2% is because a woman was endangered by her pregnancy. Okay, so if you just take that, that's 0 0.35, 0.36%, not even 1%, 0 0.3, so a third of a percent of abortions in Florida is because of rape, uh, endangered life to the mom, or incest. A third of a percent, so 99.7, 99.74% or 64% of, of um, abortions are not because of that reason. So the other reasons are um, uh, fetal abnorm abnormality, that's 1%. 1.5% is a woman's physical health, health was threatened by the pregnancy. 1.8% is a woman's psychological health, so like 2%, psychological health is threatened by the pregnancy. 20% is that the woman was aborted for social or economic reasons. There it is, social or economic reasons. Social reasons could be family pressure, right? It could be the pressure from other people. Oh, uh, it could be church pressure. Oh, the church will look down on me or a perception that the church will look down on me if they found out I got pregnant. So I need to um, abort a child before I get found out that I was pregnant. So it could be for social reasons. And there's an idolatry of fear of man, an idolatry of the church's, rep your, your reputation with the church or with your family or friends. So there's social reasons. And then 75% was no reason given. Just, just I want it because I want it. And I, don't, I choose not to give a reason. Okay, so those are some of the, the reasons there. So the three reasons why, those are the reasons given, those are idolatrous, uh, what I'm saying is that those are idolatrous reasons why abortion is happening. Okay, so the, to recap, the three reasons why abortion is wrong is because it assumes, it takes the right away from God and assumes we have the right to end life. Secondly, um, the second reason is because it kills a human, uh, an innocent human life. And the third reason is because it reinforces idolatry. So there are at least three biblical reasons why we should oppose abortion and work for uh, the sanctity of human life and caring for um, pregnant moms who are considering and feeling the pressure of getting an abortion. I have a few objections here to answer. Um, I'll answer two. One is, well, someone, someone, somebody on the pro-choice side might say, or a pro-abortion side might say, human life doesn't necessarily begin at conception. 
There's no scientific consensus on when human life begins. PJ, you only quoted one scientist. That's not a scientific consensus. It's a matter of philosophical opinion or religious belief. Human life is a continuum. Sperm and eggs are also alive, aren't they? And represent potential human beings, but virtually all sperm and eggs are wasted. Also, two-thirds of human conceptions are spontaneously aborted by nature. Another pro-abortion person might say, uh, aborting a fetus is preventing a baby from being created, not killing a live baby. It's actually preventing pregnancy. And it's not your body anyways. The girl should get the choice of what she wants to do with her body. What would you say to any of those in a humble, loving, uh, winsome, gentle way? What are some responses you guys might say? Anyone? To any of those uh, reasonings? We don't know when human life begins. Um, we're actually preventing a human life from starting. Um, and then it's not your body. And so it's not your choice. The woman has a choice because it's her body. Okay, it's not just her body, it's another person's body. Okay, let me go on that and then we'll go to you. Um, so on that, um, yes. So we wouldn't say when the, when the, when the uh, human life is inside the womb, we wouldn't say, oh, so now you have four eyes. And you got four arms and you got four legs, right? Oh, you have two hearts. No, you don't have two hearts. You have one heart and there's a, there's a body inside of you that also has a heart and eyes. So it's, the, the woman doesn't say, oh yeah, right now I have four eyes because it's my body. Like that, the, the, the embryo inside me is my body. No, it's not your body. It, the body uh, it's, it is another body, another person residing in your body. And so we don't think you have two hearts. And no one claims that they have two hearts because they don't have two hearts. I mean, there's another heart inside their body. There's two hearts in their body because the baby is inside the body, but it's not that mom's heart. It's the baby's heart, right? Okay, so yes to that point. And then you're going to say, brother? Concede whatever answer they have and just say, okay, well, so like if they say heartbeat. Let's start with heartbeat. Well, the heartbeat starts most of the time within 10 days, around 14 days, depending on right. what's happening. And most people don't even know they're pregnant for three weeks. So even in that general... So if they say heartbeat, then... Then I would, I would kind of ask them, like, well, they have heartbeat. And then even a baby can't sustain itself, like, outside the womb without the mother's help, even after the born. Right. So if someone argues, so that, that, that's another argument. It's like, well, the baby can't sustain itself apart from the mother. Well, the baby can't sustain itself. So, well, let me go back to, look, you did two there, and those are really good. Because, no, it's okay. Um, so on the, on the first one, and I want you to think about this, because I want you, I mean, part of the application here is for you to have conversations with people. You need to have conversations with other people and talk about it. Uh, we had one, one of our church guests have dinner with us uh, last year, two years ago, and uh, she said, oh, I'm personally pro-life, but I'm, I'm, I'm uh, pro, like I'm for abortion in terms of legality. And, and I said, well, what do you think about it? We just started talking about life and we just had, a, it was a simple conversation. It didn't get into deep science or anything. Just like, well, when do you think life begins? And we were just having a conversation. She was like, oh wait, 
no, I think it is wrong. And it, it, we didn't get deep at all. It was like three or four sentences of just like, well, when do you think life begins? Oh, I think it begins here. So then if you do think it, you think it's legal to kill after that? No. So do you, you, would, you wanna, would you wanna protect those after that point? Yes. Okay, well, if it's a heartbeat or whatever, three months for after the first trimester, then, then at least be consistent with that point. Because usually it's fuzzy, and so they're just um, pro-abortion. And so, again, yes, that would be one. And then the other thing you said was um, they're dependent on, uh, some, might, some might argue, oh, well, they're dependent on the mother in the womb. But, and um, the other, to, to, to kind of buttress that argument, from the pro-choice side. And by the way, you wanna get their best arguments because you don't wanna just kind of make, give them weak arguments and then you have all the strong arguments. They would say like, um, you can't force someone to donate an organ. And we can't, right? You can't force someone to donate an organ. So it's like, why would you force a mom to have to nurture the child in the womb, right? That, that kind of becomes the argument. And then to, to respond to that, I might say something like, um, well, would we, would we, would we, Fault, would we say to a mom when the baby's outside the womb, like, oh yeah, well, you can't be forced to feed the baby. So if you just let the baby die outside the womb, you know, you have the baby for three months and you're like, oh, you know what, I don't want the baby anymore. So no one can force you to give. Like, no, we would hold the, we would hold the mom accountable to, to care for the child outside the womb. And just because you're, we can't force anyone to, to give milk to somebody, but if that, if that child is under your care, then we would, we would hold them responsible to caring for them while the child is under their care. And so if it is a human life, um, then that's, that's worth taking care of. One more thing I'd say is just, um, just, just so you know, like when, when a, when a egg and sperm are conceived, then the child or that, that conception has its own unique DNA. It's not the same DNA as the mom or the dad. It's actually a mixture of the two, but not just exactly a mixture of the two. It's also a, absolutely unique as its own person. And so for that reason, it is a unique person. There's more I have here. There's a lot more that you need to look at. But the point here is um, they, people who are pro-abortion are not um, idiots. They're not fools. They're not, not thinking at all. They have some reasons, and they're made in God's image too. And so have reasons with them. I, reason with them. Converse with them. Think about it. And if you have questions, if you're a member of the church and you're like, oh, I'm, not that, I'm still not convinced. I think that it could be legal, even though I might be personally against it or whatever the case. Brothers, sisters, ha let's have conversations. Talk about it. Don't just assume, well, of course, we're, we're Christians in the church and we believe the Bible, so therefore everyone knows that. No, not everyone knows that. And even if they do, they, don't, they might not be confident about it. So let's grow together. Let's speak the truth and love to each other to grow each other in it. Let me summarize their argument, but not rebut it anymore, but just summarize the pro-choice pro argument. Let me just give you a few things here so you could be thinking about what, what's being thought and said. A right to life doesn't imply a right to use someone else's body to sustain a life. Women, don't, women do not have a responsibility to have children and certainly don't assume such responsibility by virtue of deciding to have sex. Third, outlawing abortion is very dangerous both for women and their children. Fourth, adoption still requires women to carry a baby to term and then give birth, both of which are also inherently dangerous. Fifth, abortions, on the other hand, are quite safe. And lastly, banning abortion violates a woman's right to control her own body. Those are the thoughts that are out there, okay? Um, you need to be thoughtful about that as, we, as you engage and as you try to to tell people to submit to the authority of Christ. And why? Why do I summarize those things? Look at John 8, 44. So let's bring it to some um, application here. 
John 8, 44. John 8, 44 says this. You are of your father, the devil. Jesus is speaking to some of his opponents. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. And his lies can be very convincing. They can seem plausible and they, they are different in different cultures in different times. So there are certain lies in our day and age that have become so normal that they seem plausible and even bring down our uh, awareness of how serious the situation is. So the devil is a liar and a murderer, and we need to be aware of that as we are speaking the truth in love. So here's the call. The general call is to be a Christ-centered, Christ-embodying neighbor. Look at Luke chapter 10. This in insight comes from a sermon by John Piper, but look at Luke 10, 25. You guys know the story of the Good Samaritan, right? In the story of the Good Samaritan, um, the, teach, um, the expert says, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, love your neighbor as yourself, among other things. Verse 28, he said, you've answered correctly, do this and you'll live. And then it says in verse 29, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Okay, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but who is my neighbor? And so he tells a story of the, the man who's beaten and um, almost left for dead. And then a priest walks by and walks around him. A Levite walks around him. And then a Samaritan, a half Jew, half non-Jew, ethnically, in terms of his ancestry, sees this beaten man and takes care of him and um, nurses him and brings him to a hotel and pays for him and, and says, hey, whatever else needs to be paid for, put that on my tab. I'll come back and pay for it. Just make sure this guy is okay. So he sacrifices and goes above and beyond over to care for this beaten, almost left for dead person. And then Jesus asks in verse 36. Look at verse 36. After he tells the story, Jesus asks the man, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the answer is, the one who showed mercy to him. And then Jesus told him, go and do the same. So what does Jesus tell him to do? Go and show what? Go and show mercy to those in need, right? But I want to back up a little bit here because look at verse 36. The man asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus doesn't answer the beaten down man as your neighbor. Jesus actually flips it on him. Who is my neighbor is, was the man's question. Jesus' answer is, are you a neighbor? Not who is your neighbor, who am I responsible for? Are you a responsible neighbor? So it's not like who qualifies to be my neighbor. It's what kind of person are you who's asking the question? Do you guys notice that? Because in verse 36, he says, who proved to be a neighbor to the man? Not who's your neighbor, the beaten down people are, are the neighbors. They are, but that's not the point. The point is, who are you? Are you a neighbor? Are you the neighbor that God calls you to be? Are you a neighbor who goes and shows mercy to those in need? That's the call, to go and show mercy to those in need. Not who is my neighbor, but am I a neighbor? Am I a godly, am I a neighbor who loves God and loves my neighbors? Am I a loving neighbor? So let me, let me just give you two verses here or, um, to help you feel the, the weight of your responsibility. It says in Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4, Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Vindicate them. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. So here's what I'm saying. Vindicate the unborn. Do justice to the unborn. Rescue the unborn. Deliver the unborn out of the hand of the evil one, out of Satan. 
out of murder. Isaiah 1, 16 and 17, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil from the evil deeds from my sight, Clean, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow, widow, Isaiah 1, 16 and 17. And why do we do this? Because this is what God is, and we're to be imitators of God, right? Does God care for the needy and the vulnerable? He does. Psalm 146, verse 7 says about God, he executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. Uh, verse 8, the Lord loves the righteous. Verse 9, the Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Deuteronomy 10, verse 18 says that God executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and he shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. And so he says, so then he commands us, so show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt, he says to the Israelites. So why should you show mercy? Why should you go and show mercy as a loving neighbor? Because God goes. God went and shows mercy. God cares. And so we're called to imitate this God. And so the verse I said last week for my scripture reading, and I never went back to in my sermon, some of you were like, why'd you read that verse and never go back to it? That was a good point. Good critique. Um, but Psalm 31:89 applies to this week and last week, whether ethnocentrism or, or um, abortion. Open Psalm 31, uh, Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the mute. The unborn can't speak. Open the mouth for the mute. Open your mouth for the mute. For the rights of all the unfortunate. So open your mouth for the rights. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. Ephesians 4, 15, speak the truth in love. Abortion will not go away. Uh, Randy Alcorn says, abortion will not go away. It will long outlast Roe versus Wade, he says. The changing of laws is important, but laws do not automatically change minds or hearts. States that prohibit abortion will be next to states with liberal abortion laws, which will become havens for abortion clinics. Abortion pills and do-it-yourself abortion kits may become increasingly popular. Those who look to the Supreme Court to grant us an abortion-free America will be disillusioned. Many lives can be saved through judicial reform and legislative action, and for that we should rejoice. But our work will not be done until our Lord returns. The jobs of personal intervention, education, and political action will continue for decades to come, requiring great perseverance. So brothers and sisters, keep learning. Watch a video online about how an abortion is done every year at least, just to remember what is being done. Pray, speak to others about it, learn more yourself, and lastly, apply the gospel to people. We have good news. We do have a great commission. It's to make disciples, not make pro-life advocates. Make disciples of Jesus Christ. And guess what? We need the gospel for ourselves because we're guilty too, right? We are guilty. We talk about corporate sin. I'm an American citizen. I'm guilty corporately. I'm part of the corporate uh, nation of America that is guilty for these sins. So I need the gospel for myself as one of, as a member of the society. And we're also hypocritical. As, as Christians in the church, we're hypocritical. We've gotten abortions. We've paid for them. We've suggested or sought or persuaded others to get them. We've been cowardly in our silence when others were thinking about getting an abortion or talking about abortion. We have been focused on rules that we have failed to love people warmly, causing them to confide, confide in us causing them to not confide in us when, when they get pregnant because of how angry we are, maybe even righteously angry about abortion, but we haven't been warm towards them and compassionate. And that's just regarding abortion. 
Not to talk about bitterness and self-righteousness. Um, murder, Jesus says, is even if you hate your brother or, or, or um, are angry with them in your heart, you murder them. So we're not pro-life in that regard when we're angry with image bearers, sinfully angry with image bearers. Um, so the spirit of murder um, is within us as well. We are numb to our historical moment. Um, I mean, looking back at the pictures again of abortion and the videos, it, it's horrific and sad and heartbreaking, and it also just, it's rebuking to me of how, how numb I get to it almost every year. And I have to say that almost every year when I preach on it, that I've been numb to it again and numb to it again. So here's the good news for sinners like you and I. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for sinners like you and I, to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us, to forgive us. Some of you, if you've got an abortion every year, that anniversary comes around, you feel that fresh guilt every year. And Satan starts to accuse you of your sin. The good news is that Christ took that accusation for you. When he died on the cross for your sins, he took the damnation that we deserve. And he rose from the dead giving life and forgiveness and cleansing and freedom for all who trust in him and repent from their sins. So if you're not a Christian, turn to Jesus and find forgiveness not only for this sin, in whatever ways, not just by having an abortion, but in whatever ways that you've participated or have been complicitly passive in, in, in strengthening and reinforcing a, an abortion culture, go to Christ for forgiveness. Go to Christ for grace. Go to Christ for healing. Go to Christ for cleansing. And talk to other brothers and sisters about Jesus and how the gospel of grace ministers to us all. Let me close with one more word of encouragement just before... Um, and this came when I was either doing the scripture reading or at some point right before the message. Um, I do feel burdened that I'm not doing enough. And we just need, I, even though you feel burdened or even guilty, if you feel sinfully guilty, confess your sin to God. But it's, it's like it's, the problem is way bigger than any one of us or any one church, right? So just keep doing what you're doing for God's glory and just trust the Lord with it. But let me say something even about our cultural moment of blindness. When I think about Jonathan Edwards and his pro-slavery practice, um, he, he, there's something greater than our time because no matter what, generations from now, people are gonna look back and we, we have blind spots, right? Every generation has blind spots. Here's some encouragement to us who have blind spots just like Jonathan Edwards did. His son, Jonathan Edwards Jr., was a, uh, an abolitionist. Who was he discipled by primarily? By his dad, right? A lot of the Christians in the next generation um, became abolitionists uh, from, from churches like that. Why? Because they were discipled by Jonathan Edwards. Now, he wasn't right on that issue, but if you keep teaching the Bible and you keep saying Jesus Christ is Lord, we're always reforming, right? So we keep going back to the Bible again and again, submitting our thoughts to Christ, trying to take every thought captive to Christ, and teaching people everything we know about the Bible and saying, hey, where I'm wrong, where I'm off, keep looking to Christ in the scriptures, we keep discipling to do that, then even our blind spots, by God's grace, will be corrected by future generations as we keep, out, keep holding the Bible out and the gospel out and saying, hey, we don't get everything right, we're going to do our best. And God, show us our unintentional sins. Show us our blind spots. But even then, we're still going to have some. So let's keep looking to Christ, let's keep preaching the Bible and keep sharing and reading the Bible with other people and calling people not to follow us ultimately, but to follow Jesus, who cares for and protects all, including the unborn. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that this ultimately doesn't rest on us. It rests on you. And your shoulders are broad. You are all-powerful. You create the world with a word. You could end abortion with a word. Indeed, we're saying, when you come, Lord Jesus, with clouds descending, you will end all injustice. 
You will, you will end all infanticide and abortion. You will end all murderous thoughts. You will end the devil's lies and the blind spots that we Christians have. You will end all of that, and there will be no more sin, no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. So, Lord, we pray, haste the day. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. And until you do, help us to keep trusting in Christ crucified and risen for sinners like us. Help us to keep offering out that gospel of hope to others, to other sinners. And help us to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. Help us to pursue justice and righteousness for the unborn. Help us to discern the weight of the problem and to care. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters and friends, uh, let's take the next five minutes to